when I give a speech in, in Europe and uh, on the hidden champions ask who of you strives to become hidden champion, I would say usually 10% raise their hand. When I ask the same question in China, usually to larger crowds, at least 50% raise their hand. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning again from Herman Simon. I love talking to Herman. He is a phenomenal thinker and amazing human being. He's written 40 books and they've been translated into over 30 languages. He's in the Thinker's 50 Hall of Fame of the most influential international management thinkers. He's the world's foremost authority on pricing strategy. And we talk a bit about the formation of his firm, Simon Kutcher and Partners. And if they'd just been in Germany, they could have been a 50 million euro business. Now, if you start a business and you can get the 50 million euros, that's good going. But they decided to be the best pricing consultancy in the world and are now 10 times that size, 1,800 employees around the world in three independent subsidiaries, which means they can't be bullied by national governments to not do business with parts of the world that national governments might disagree with doing business with. And so that hidden, that growth of Simon Kutcher and partners really mirrors his earlier work, which is called Hidden Champions, where he looked at why was Germany one of the biggest manufacturers and exporters of goods in the world, given the size of the business and, and per capita so much bigger than anybody else he looked at. He's updated that book, published last month, Hidden Champions in the Chinese Century. So he looks, at, looks again at the drive of hidden champions in Germany. We talk about what drives the entrepreneurial DNA in Germany too to want to be the best in the world, to want to go really deep. If it's still chainsaws, you know, we're going to make the best chainsaws in the world and sell them all over the world. That's going to give us a global market to play in. That's probably going to give us two and a half or three times the profit margin if, I, if, we'd, and if we'd only stayed in Germany. And so this is a, these are strategic decisions that German companies are making more often than their international competitors, except China. In China, he says, look, when he talks to a group of Chinese entrepreneurs, more than half of the people in the room will put their hands up and he says, are you trying to be the best in the world? Do you want to be a global business? So we talk about what drives that, the economics of this, how you set it up, how you make it work. And I think the takeaway is go really deep, focus, be the best, find something you can really be the best in the world at. That will drive your profit margin. It will drive a strategic moat around your business. You can be world famous in your niche. Fantastic conversation as ever with Herman. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. Hello, I'm Herman Simon, founder and honorary chairman of Simon Kutcher and Partners. We are a consultancy and a global leader in price consulting with 43 offices in 28 countries. And this is the next installment of Hidden Champions, the book that we're talking to you about today. What was the first book about? How did the whole Hidden Champions story come about? In 1987, the famous Harvard professor, Ted Levitt, 
who who made the term globalization popular, he asked me why are the Germans so successful in exports? And just the year before, we were had for the first time become number one in in uh, exports in the world. And I was thinking about that. Everybody thinks it's uh, the large corporations which determine export performance. But then I detected that we have a large number of mid-sized global market leaders, more than any other countries. So these are champions, global market leaders, but nobody knows them. So I called them hidden champions. And uh, the first book was just detecting them, describing them, giving some first statistics. And uh, it was a revelation that there is a whole sector of the economy which we are not aware of. And each of these niche markets has a global market leader. And these are the hidden champions. And how specialized are these firms? That Like ball-bearing manufacturers? Is it is it that specific? It's even much more specific. <laughs> okay. Uh, so they are really specialized. If you think of compressors, uh, there's a company which is a global leader for compressors for ships. Uh, another is a global leader for compressors in medical technology applications. So it's not just ball bearings. It's, for instance, ball bearings made from ceramics, which are used in space and for rockets, etc. Extremely specialized, highly focused, but global. From my perspective, I look at fast-growing companies, scale-ups, and there's, there was some great work done in a, looking back at economic growth or particularly employment growth in the US. What proportion of German GDP are these mid-sized companies? Or is that not the important metric? Is the important metric growth? Or I guess it's probably percentage of exports is from yeah. the original. Of the... Um Roughly in the in the world, I detected about three thousand five hundred of these hidden champions. The definition is as follows: top three in the world, less than five billion euros or dollars in revenue, and little known, unknown in the general republic. Of the three thousand five hundred in the world, about fifteen hundred come from Germany. And these 1,500 companies account for about 26% of the huge German exports. If you take all mid-sized exporters together, they account for about two-thirds of German exports. And that is a remarkable similarity to China, where 68% of the huge Chinese exports come from mid-sized and small companies and not from large firms. And this is a commonality between China and Germany because in all other countries, large corporations determine the export performance, but the per capita exports in the other countries are much lower than in Germany. For instance, in, in Europe, about half, in France, UK, Italy, and in the US, only about one-fifth of the German number. So our export, continuing export strengths comes from the hidden champions and from mid-sized companies. And these aren't public companies. These are privately held family businesses. It's uh, about 70 are family companies privately held. About 10% are publicly listed now. Okay. 10% are in the ownership of private equity investors and 10% are parts of larger groups. So we can say that... 85% are, are family-dominated, even if they are publicly listed. Uh, many of them are still with the majority of the, of the family. I guess, what are the economic factors? Is it the regionalization of Germany that leads to this, or is it something in the, the German psyche? Yeah, why does Germany have so many of these mid-sized global markets? For Switzerland and Austria, it's the same per capita number. The structure there is very similar. And it has to do with the, the history. Until 1918, we had in Germany 23 monarchies and three republics. And only then Germany became a unified country. And so somebody, an entrepreneur in Munich who wanted to grow and did business with Düsseldorf or uh, Dresden in Saxonia, that was international business. 
So I think this <laughs> internationalization has become part of the German entrepreneurial DNA. Germans internationalize much faster than French or English or American entrepreneurs. They sell it locally and then go international later. Yeah, yeah. And, and that is uh, the mirror side, you could say, of the specialization we, uh, we touched upon. Specialization and focus makes the market small. How do you make it big? By globalizing. Just to give you one example, there's a global leader in retractable dock leashes. <laughs> It's, by the way, a high-tech product. And if you sell retractable dock leashes only in Germany, that's a mini market. If you do it globally, that's a market which is sufficiently large for mid-sized companies. And this company, it's called Flexi, has 70% global market share. 70, 70% of the global market. Many, many hidden champions have global market shares of over 50%. And is there, is there something else that stops these companies being bought up and acquired? Is the, is the family mindset different? Uh, that's part of it, but they are acquired and bought. And uh, increasingly by shinies, because the shinies are very fond of the hidden champions concept. My, my books have sold more than one, than one million copies in China. They are eager to become global market leaders. And so they have been buying about 300 companies in the last seven years, many of them hidden champions. But actually, Americans have even bought more. So okay. among the hidden champions, a significant number is today in, in American ownership, often through larger corporations or through private equity investors. And the share of the Chinese is also rapidly increasing. Do you worry for the future of these firms? Uh, yes and no. Of course, I'm always a little sad when such a great company is bought by a bigger corporation. For instance, uh, one company here in my uh, home region, the name was used to be Kroman Engineering, and they were a global leader for systems for the assembly of microelectronic products. So Intel, for instance, was their biggest customer. And then Elon Musk detected them. They were a supplier for his battery um, plant in um, mega factory in, in, in Nevada. And he was so impressed by them that he bought the company. And today it's Tesla Automation. Right. <laughs> it's it's uh, sad that uh, these companies uh, come into a big, large uh, conglomerate. On the other hand, that opens new uh, growth opportunities for them. For instance, there was a, is a company um, which makes uh, the so-called iDrive in the BMW cars. They were bought uh -huh. by Chinese a few years ago. And today they are four times larger. Their, their revenue increased from 300 million euros to 1.2 billion euros within a few years because the Chinese acquirer helps them to develop the Chinese market. So it has both negative and positive sides when they are acquired by larger corporations or by, uh, by private equity investors who inject more capital and helps them grow. Overall, a word on growth They grow not with spectacular annual rates, but they grow consistently. For instance, when I wrote my first book in 1996, the average revenue was 95 million euros. Today, it's 470 million euros. And some of them are now 20 billion, 30 billion, who were hidden champions uh, 25 years ago. So they are today, on the average, five times larger than they were 25 years ago. And, and that's a good growth pattern, I think. And is there, is there a culture that the, the way in which, you know, families tend to hold, or privately held companies anyway, certainly not public companies, but even family businesses that I know take a longer-term view and a more paternalistic view of their employees and have often have a real deep connection to where they're from and i guess in in many cases these hidden champions are the largest employer in some town or other absolutely 
70% of them are not in the big cities, but in small towns, even villages. And typically, they are the largest employer in the region. And uh, there are some interesting indicators of the long-term uh, orientation and continuity. For instance, the average tenure of the CEOs is 21 years. For large corporations, it's six years. I think that alone tells you a lot about long-term orientation. And uh -huh. another interesting uh, indicator is the loyalty of the employees. Their average turnover or churn rate per year is 2.7%. The average for Germany is 7.3%, and that is already low in international comparison. Yeah. For McDonald's, it's, it's 100%. For Starbucks, 350%. So... Um, And, and, and this loyalty of the employees and the high qualification of the employees, they invest about 50% more than the average company into education of their employees. That is, of course, the inner strength. And another very important factor is coming from the leaders. And there it all starts. That is the ambition to be the best in their market worldwide. And I could give you dozens of quotes, for instance, Stiel is the global leader in chainsaws, and they say, we only do it if we can be the best. If we are not convinced that we can be the best in this activity, we don't touch it, we don't do it. You find that even in, in very modern uh, sectors like DeepL. DeepL is the best translation machine in the world. They say, our goal is to provide the best translations in the world. And they, they do it. They have been tested against Google and uh, Microsoft. And just an indicator, typically Google or Microsoft have eight to 10 errors or imperfections um, per, per New York Times article where it was tested and uh, DeepL has one to two. There it all starts, the ambition to be the best. And, and that was also my starting point. We want Simon Kutcher, my company, we strive to be the best price consultancy in the world. And we have achieved that, I think. <laughs> People have said that that's true. No, it's uh, we have for uh, six, seven countries studies from um, Financial Times, from Forbes magazine uh, in Germany, from Manager magazine, where we are ranked number one in this specialty. Again, we are not in general management consulting against McKinsey or Boston. We are focusing on pricing. I think that sort of specialization, that positioning is different. But the... Um that a small family firm in the middle of nowhere says, we're going to be the best in the world at something. And I just, I find that tends not to be, it's almost when, if you say, because quite often I'm having conversations with our clients about positioning, you know, and you, and there's almost an, uh, an aversion to wanting to say you're going to be the best at anything. You know, like you're getting above yourself. And then there's also a little Englander thing about, yeah, you know. I, actually would not call that positioning because in positioning there's too much marketing uh, proclamation advertising in in this term positioning it actually starts with what some people called deep tech not high tech that you really are very very deep in something and um That is a traditional attitude, which, which has to change, by the way, that many of these companies tend to do everything themselves. Just a, an example which you cannot believe. Wanzel is a global leader for shopping carts and airport luggage carts. So you, mm -hmm. you can go everywhere to Shanghai, to Moscow, to Mexico City. You will find Wanzel cars in every... Can you imagine that the Japanese, the Chinese buy this product from a German company? And this company says, we're doing everything ourselves. And that's why our cars, uh, shopping carts, keep twice as long as the others. The secret of superiority lies in this attitude that they go deeper in technology, in know-how, also in the value chain. 
because you can only be superior in something which you are doing yourself if you buy it on the market everybody else can buy it yeah for instance an extreme example faber castell is a global leader in pencils a trivial product and not a gross product in the age of of, of digitalization and they even grow their own wood in brazil <laughs> And I asked the, the late CEO, he passed away two years ago, how come you grow your own wood? You could buy wood, there are markets for wood. He said, my father bought the wood. And when I took over, I, I found out that we do not get the same consistent quality year after year. So I decided to grow our own wood and they operate plantations, not uh, 26 hectares or acres, but 100 square kilometers in Brazil, where they make their own wood to produce 2.3 billion pencils per year. And uh, this is a, a depth which then leads to superiority and uniqueness in the end product. That strategy of being unique and having depth also creates, you know, you can't overcome that level of deep expertise quickly. Nobody can go and plant a plantation in brazil and quickly even get any sort of parity so people would just say they're doing 2.3 billion pencils the we can't compete on quality we're going to have to we're going to have to compete on price or we're going to have to compete somewhere else but it's amazing that you know 1500 i think you said were hidden champions in germany and so far you've mentioned two that i own at home i've got a chainsaw and we've got some of those pencils in the house yeah. So it's just, it's just. Uh, Let me give you a, a more modern one. You probably have never heard of LSTM. Nope. LSTM stands for long short term memory. And that is the software behind Siri of Apple or Alexa of Amazon. Nobody knows this software. You, you, you just are confronted with Siri and call up Siri and ask something. And the software behind this is from, from Germany and, and Switzerland. And this software is installed on more than 3 billion smartphones. Nobody knows it. And now another question. Would you guess how many suppliers Apple has in Germany? How many suppliers does Apple have in Germany? Hundreds. 767. And none of them is known to the, public, the general public. 767 suppliers in Germany. And Tim Cook said, the CEO of Apple, that the German suppliers are world class and that the air is very thin there. These are the hidden champions, the companies being active behind the visible curtain, the so-called back office of the industrial value chain. I just, I'm still fascinated by the depth versus the breadth. Whereas, you know, you speak to most people and they're, they're sort of, well, you know, we've got some revenue in this, so we're going to, it just feels that almost intuitively business leaders in the rest of the world look for adjacency rather than for depth. Yeah, that's... Um... That's probably true that they go into diversification breadth rather than depth. And of course, the condition for this focused deep strategy to lead to growth is that you globalize. And they do that through their own subsidiaries. They do not delegate globalization to distributors, agents, intermediaries. Many of the hidden champions have more than 50, some more than 100 owned subsidiaries. And, and, and that ah. creates closeness to customer. And closeness to customer is actually their biggest strength. It, it's not techno in technology, they're also very good. But closeness to customer, they say 87% say that closeness to customer is their biggest strength. But these are mostly B2B uh, businesses. Only, only about 25% are either service or consumer businesses. All the others are like in the Apple case, industrial vendors and suppliers is there something different in german business schools is there a do people inherit a playbook a hundred year playbook of how to go global and everybody immediately thinks okay we've got you know we've got a product we're going to go global 
uh, you could say that. I already mentioned that in the DNA of the entrepreneurs, globalization is a very, very early, early step. Yeah. And this globalization is easier than globalization in consumer markets because industrial processes are very similar across the world. Yeah. For instance, uh, there's one company also, a really excellent company, Festo, they are the global leader in pneumatics, which is a core component of automation. And I've visited several hundred factories in China. In each of them, I asked, do you have Festo components in your factory? Everybody said, yes, we have Festo in our factory. Because these processes are, are standardized, you have fewer customers, so it's easier to internationalize than in consumer markets, where the habits, languages, regulation, culture, um, bureaucracy play a, a much more important role. There are less hurdles in internationalizing industrial products and processes. And so what's driving the Chinese hidden champions then? You know, is, I mean, they, I guess they don't have a market, but is there similar, did you find similar DNA in those businesses? I already said that uh, when it comes to the share and exports, China and Germany are very similar. Uh -huh. And Chinese entrepreneurs are really eager to become global market leaders. When I give a speech in, in Europe and uh, on the hidden champions ask, who of you strives to become a hidden champion? I would say usually 10%. These are entrepreneurs to, to whom I speak. 10% raise their hand. When I ask the same question in China, usually to larger crowds, at least 50% raise their hand. So global market leadership is a beloved idea of the Chinese. And they develop in the meantime the capabilities to really compete against the Germans. And that's why I call this book Hidden Champions in the Chinese Century. Just to give you a few examples which explain that. If we look at the employees in research and development, the Germans already spend a lot, 50% more than the average company. But the Chinese, with comparable size in, in revenue, they have three times more employees in research and development. And in some areas, they are leading, that's certainly true for artificial intelligence, for railroad technology. And my advice to European, German, or Western uh, hidden champions is, you must become Chinese. Behind that is the, the general principle, you must perform every activity in the location where it can be performed best. And if that is China, we have to go there. And we have already more than 2,000 uh, factories of hidden champions, of German hidden champions in China. So they ah. are already very strong in China, but they must go further and establish full value chain competence centers. There are two examples, uh, two um, Mining technology companies have moved their competence center for mining technology to China because we have no longer any mining in Germany and in China mining is still very important. Or Velo, a high-tech pump champion, they are just establishing their competence center for artificial intelligence in China because they say China has better conditions to develop artificial intelligence product and services than Germany. So this general principle, you have to do it where it can be done best. This is not only a disadvantage for Europe or for Germany, because the Chinese have to observe the same principle. And all Chinese automotive manufacturers have a design and uh, development center in Germany because they say to develop cars, especially premium cars, Germany is the best location. We see that Tesla just opened the U Gigafactory in close to Berlin. Intel announced a 17 billion euro investment in Eastern Germany. So it goes in both directions. And are you are you worried though that you know one of the benefits has been the employment 
local employment and if if we move operations particularly those that relate to you know people and skills that i can see if you're a mining company and there's no mining in germany that makes that makes sense but if you're i don't know if you're ball bearings and it's uh, ceramic ball bearings for space you know and we need to build another factory and you say okay well it's going to be cheaper to build it in china we can get the expertise we can sell to the chinese aerospace industry and then germany doesn't get the benefit of that investment i mean that was of course a fear for 30 years or so that moving certain parts of the value chain to other countries impedes employment in germany the opposite is true uh, the hidden champions, the German hidden champions have created about 2 million new jobs in, in the last 30 years. 2 wow. million and, and typically highly qualified jobs. Of those, about one third are in Germany and two thirds are outside Germany. Uh -huh. So unlike the large corporations who have decreased their employment in Germany, they still have increased Behind that is a reconfiguration of the global value chain. And if you build a very strong position in China, that also strengthens your German headquarters or your German uh, location because they deliver parts in, in both directions. Uh, certain activities are performed here, others in, in China or in, in the Silicon Valley or in the UK. The development behind this is what I call relative deglobalization, which means that exports are substituted by foreign direct investments. We see that very clearly. That's also driven by, by political barriers, by environmental aspects. So I, I do not see that as a threat it, it may not be totally balanced, but just to give you one example, I had a meeting with 100 Chinese automotive suppliers. They all said, we want to, uh, to manufacture in Germany and also do research there. So, so they will all come to Germany. And what about the, do you, is there a threat with the ownership? You know, we talked earlier about what percentage of the current hidden champions are foreign owned. Does that then impact the next 30 years job growth story, do you think? What I, what I don't know is what are the entrepreneurs or the owners who sell doing with the money they take in. <laughs> Just two examples. KUKA, one of the three top companies in robotics, was sold to Maidea, a Chinese company. The KUKA owners got 4.6 billion euros. The same is true for, for Wirtgen, as a global leader in road milling machines, was sold to John Deere also 4.5 billion euros. So what do these families, how, where do they invest? I don't know. I, I think they also invest in China. They may even get shares from the Chinese acquirer or the American acquirer. So I think the whole system will globalize in a different way than in the past, where it was globalization was mostly through exports. Today, it will be through foreign direct investments and three configurations also in the ownership, I think. So from these sales, we may have much more ownership in American or even in Chinese companies. But I haven't seen data on that, what, what the sellers do with the money. Is Germany producing as many hidden champions? Is it producing enough hidden champions? In the past, yes. In the future, I am skeptical because we have a large sector, which I call sunset industry. All the companies which have relied mostly on combustion engines, for them, it will be very difficult. Will they be able to develop new products for electromobility, for new energies, etc. Some of these hidden champions have 80-90% of their revenue coming from combustion engines, which are going to, to disappear in the next 10 years or so. And in this sense, we are not generating enough hidden champions. We have actually, we have enough startups, but 
not enough scale-ups. Companies, say, which grow from, from 10 employees to 1,000 or 2,000 employees in the next five or 10 years. And then there is a very serious problem with the startups. Many of them are sold. That's more from, uh, from the United States because the young startups, entrepreneurs, uh, they, they are offered 50 or 100 million and then they take the money instead of building independent companies. And what even is, is more dangerous that very often the American acquires offer, uh, make generous offers to the founders of the startups uh, to move to the US. For instance, one company, Genesis, founded by two guy, German guys from Munich, they are the global leader in Bitcoin mining, more than twice as large as the, as the next one. They left Germany, and that happens too often. I interviewed a guy, Robert Glazer, who's a US lawyer, lives in London, and he said they do about 200 deals a year to take European firms to the United States. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly the proof, yeah. Do we all need to learn Chinese, do you think? Or do we need to just open a Chinese subsidiary? We should more learn more Chinese. More young people should learn Chinese. But the people who do not speak Chinese or do not speak it uh, perfectly still can manage in China because Chinese are also uh, adapting more to English as the international language. So I, I, I know quite a few Europeans who run uh, factories or subsidiaries in China and uh, they, they are getting along. Let me give you one example. That's also interesting under a different aspect. Trumpf is a global leader in laser machines, a German company, German leading champion. And in 2013, they acquired a Chinese company which makes lasers, industrial lasers, and they use it as a second brand, lower price, and it's run by a young German who has been in China for many years. And that's now the largest factory of Trumpf in the world. Ah, okay. The Chinese acquired subsidiary Products are sold under a different name, a Chinese brand. And Trumpf is really a, a superstar. They contribute a key part to the extreme ultraviolet lithography machines, which are made by the Dutch hidden champion ASML. Trumpf contributes the laser. This laser has 450,000 components and weighs 17 ton. And um, <laughs> you, you may know that ASML has a global monopoly for these machines. But you see that Trump is also engaged in China with their own brand and, and as they have uh, plants there. But they acquired a second brand, which is now the largest factory of Trump in the world. It's fascinating how you end up, as you say, these are B2B companies that people have never heard of developing deep expertise. Yeah, and they are not always small. I mean, Trumpf is close to the 5 billion euro barrier where it would no longer be a hidden champion. Aha. Uh -huh. Any implications that you've been able to see? Because people talked about reconfiguring global supply chains post-COVID and people bringing manufacturing more locally or having the yeah. opportunity to do that. That is certainly a very important trend, uh, which is part of my motto. Uh, the Germans or the Europeans must become Chinese, but the Chinese must also become Europeans, and they are, they are doing that. That has all been uh, impeded by, by uh, COVID-19 and that we cannot travel back and forth, but it will happen. And uh, some companies even go a step further by setting up three legally independent headquarters, one in Europe, one in the US, one in, in Asia or China, because they assume that it will become more difficult to do trade between these regions. And we at Simon Kutcher, we have this set up. We have three legally independent holding company, one in Germany, one in the US, and one in Singapore. And I think that 
could be the configuration for the future, where you become an insider in Asia and China or in the US, and then Trump or other similar uh, crazy guys cannot uh, really give you trouble in, in dealing with these regions. And so how do you drive, or is there no global cooperation between those three legal entities then? So from a, if I'm an employee in the firm, does it feel like I work in the Asian business? See, the ownership may be identical. For instance, in our case, the ownership is identical, but these are three legally independent units. Uh, okay. so they have no, no uh, legal connection between these. Only, only the ownership is identical. And that could be in, in any uh, construct of this kind. In Singapore, we do not have a subsidiary of Simon Kutcher uh, Holding, Germany. And the U.S. Uh, company is also not a subsidiary, but it's directly held by the partners. Uh-huh. Okay. And you set that up like that pre-COVID. So was that, were you thinking this, were you th- was that foresight to think this might get hard, so we're going to go and set the business up this way? Uh, partially tax played a role, but uh, we also want to be decentralized, but it was not as explicit as it, as it is in some current cases where companies say we have to set up independent units. Let me give you, you, you one example that's uh, the, the global leader in, in battery casings. Heidkamp und Thumann is the name in Düsseldorf. They had a plant in China which supplied the U.S. market. And when Trump introduced the tariffs, they were no longer uh, competitive. And they have a plant in Europe, in, in the Czech Republic, which supplied the European market. Now they do the following with the American tariffs. The European plant supplies America, the Chinese plant supplies Europe and China. And they say that has to stop. We have to be equally strong in all three regions. And uh, they are building a huge plant or that's already operating in Nevada, especially for Tesla. So you have to protect yourself against political intervention and also against the environmental problem. I mean, COVID-19 has shown that the global supply chains are, are too fragile. And uh, one guy said, we, we are getting 300 components from China and assemble them in Germany. If any one of these components is missing, we cannot assemble the product. That has to stop. And the whole setup of the global supply chain, these risks were not sufficiently observed. And now we have seen a global supply chain is often too risky, so we have to establish a full value chain in the in the regions where the products are sold. By the way, 3D printing helps because we can print out the product in the target market and, and have the data still in, in Germany. Okay. And this deep expertise, what I'm guessing that this means that they get premium pricing, higher margins. Yes, that's your, true. Sort of, yeah. which is you know your area of expertise. Is is there a? Do you have a sense of, you know, people have often said about the iPhone. You know, Apple have only seven percent of the smartphone market, but command ninety percent of the margin. Yeah. Is that? I guess things are similar across the, the not champions. not that extreme, but the prices of hidden champions are usually ten to fifteen percent uh, above the market average. In the Apple iPhone case, it's much more. So that's really an extraordinary case. And if you look at the profitability, the margins of the hidden champions are about uh, 2.5 to three times higher than the average margin of German companies. So uh, these companies are profitable and are able to invest more in research and development and innovation. You said two and a half to three times X as opposed yes, to percent yes, more. Yeah. Okay. German profitability is is slow in international comparison over the years. We have a net margin of uh, 3.4%. The international net margin after taxes, after everything, is rather a little over 5%. 
that's also the, the magnitude in, in the UK. And uh, the net margin of the hidden champions is 8 to 9%. And that different net margin in Germany, is that driven by government taxes and tariffs or is that driven by investment in training across the board, which is higher in the hidden champions? Yeah, that's a complex issue, which I treat in my book, True Profit. It starts with the fact that German companies are not sufficiently profit-oriented. Another factor is competition in Germany is quite intense. Then we have overcapacities. Overcapacities are uh, profit killers in, in many industries. The taxes are high, so a number of factors, five more factors or so, the, the relations, power of the trade unions, etc., come together to put pressure on, on profitability in, in Germany. Aha. But the hidden champions, due to the higher value they provide, they deviate from this pattern. Well, I was going to say you could almost see, notwithstanding the DNA and the historical global market that Germany was itself, you can see if there's uh, people might go, God, we're not making any money. There's loads of competition. There's overcapacity, right? We're going to go and sell it somewhere else because that sounds like a hard thing to do. So let's go and do something hard that other people won't follow us to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but that's not the reason. The reason why they sell outside Germany is that for these specialties, the German market is simply too small. And uh, only if you develop a global market, let's take our case. If we, our case, if we did price consulting only in Germany, we would be maybe a $50 million company. With being global, we are a $500 million company. Even such a niche is big enough for a mid-sized company to, to uh, attain growth, to grow over time. And so the globalization is an indispensable part of their strategy. But I, I, but I, again, I just think it's, I'm fascinated, you know, because if you were a 5 million pound business or 5 million euro business and they go, okay, let's, uh, do we want to, we'll get to 50, 50 million euros because that's a good living for everybody. It's like, no, let's be hard. Let's go harder. Let's go to 500 million euros and be global. You know, you're right. There's something in the DNA of German entrepreneurs where that's their thinking. You know, 50 is not enough. Let's go to 500. Okay, let's go, let's go global. On the size of the global market, but I mean, you have so many markets where the market is more than 1 billion and... Uh, if you can attain 50% of that market, that's already 500 billion. That's a good size. <laughs> 500 totally. million. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Herman, that's fab. What, is there something else in the book that, that you think we should have talked about that I haven't, we haven't, hasn't come up in conversation? There are many different aspects. Let me just point uh, to one which, which is not considered as a success factor. That's, it, it's close to the DNA, but it's also the mental globalization or internationalization of the society. And that starts with a worker family who has been abroad for vacation. One of the entrepreneurs said, I, I always need people who I can send to, uh, to the North Pole or to Africa or everywhere. And my employees go there. A, a small company from Bonze are a global leader in high very high performance organs for the Iron National Theater in, in Beijing, in, in, in Japan, in the Carnegie Hall. They have 65 people. And 25 of those are always somewhere in the world. <laughs> and when I go to France and ask a normal worker, have you been outside France? He says, no. They go to France, in, in France, to the Mediterranean. They don't leave the country. They have never been abroad. And same is true for Japan and for Korea and even for the United States, where only a few people have a, a passport at all. So this is a, a mental foundation for international. Of course, smaller countries like Switzerland, Netherlands, and Sweden are even more advanced in that regard, more internationalized. But among the large countries... Germany is by far the most internationalized. Of course, the UK, if you take London, the financial 
community, they are also very global. But the UK as such is far behind in this mental development of, of Germany. And to conclude, I, I think the, the fire, the combustion, the drive comes from the entrepreneurs with the ambition to be the best in the world. And if you have that ambition, ambition, it's amazing what you can achieve. Uh, we, we are no, I am not an Einstein and uh, we are no Einsteins, but nobody in the world is really specializing on pricing as we do it at Simon Kutcher and have 1800 people who are specializing in pricing. We are not more intelligent than others. It's, it's just that we focus more on one thing. Focus. And then combine it with globalization. Otherwise, it remains a very small enterprise. Fabulous. Herman, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? I should have started earlier with our business. <laughs> yeah. I should have started maybe 10 years earlier and we would then be three times larger because four times larger in, in 10 years today we have 1800 people 522 million dollars in revenue in 10 years we will have six to seven thousand people and two billion euros in revenue whether i'm still alive then is a different question because the company is now in the hands of the the next generation we have two uh co-CEOs, one Brit and one German, and they run the company very, very well. Very good. Other than Hidden Champions in the Chinese Century, published in June, available from all good booksellers, are you going to do an audio version of this book? I think the, the publisher does an audio version as well. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I don't know why it's already available because the book just came out two weeks ago. Okay, that'll be good. What other books should people pick up and read on this topic of focus maybe and globalization or anything else that you're reading that you've enjoyed recently? If they want to learn from me, from my experiences, my autobiographies, many worlds, one life, a remarkable journey from farmhouse where I am now to global stage. And there I describe this whole journey from a farm boy in the 1950s in the Middle Ages to uh, what we are doing today on a global scale. Fabulous. And what else have you been reading recently that uh, you've enjoyed? I have been reading quite a few books about uh, German history recently, especially about the years between the First World War and the Nazi time. And it's horrible what, what happens then. And if we think again of the situation now in Russia, uh, and Ukraine, there are so many parallels, and it's it's sad that uh, humankind obviously does not learn. And right now, I, I'm reading a totally different book. John Steinbeck travels with Charlie. John Steinbeck, the famous American, also he traveled through the U.S. for three months in old age with his dog Charlie. <laughs> and that's right. also eye-opening. I, I think I know America very well, but. What he is, the story he tells, stories he tells there is very enlightening about America. Herman, thank you very much indeed for coming on today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you again about your new book. Dom, thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.